Welcome to Review the Future, the podcast that takes an in-depth look at the impact of technology on culture. I'm John Perry. I'm Ted Cover. And today on Future Express, we are talking about the robot used to take out the Dallas shooter and Pokemon Go. This is one of our Express episodes. This is the more loose and off-the-cuff companion podcast to our main flagship Review the Future podcast. Same feed. So if you want to tell which episode is which, the ones with the X are the Express episodes. The ones without it are the more in-depth episodes. So there was a tragedy in Dallas mm-hmm. uh, not too long ago. A, a sniper started shooting during a protest of police violence and specifically was targeting police. The suspect in this case uh, was well-armed and was holed up in a parking garage. And the cops uh, utilized a bomb-diffusing robot to deliver an explosive device to near this suspect, and then they detonated the device and killed the guy. And so it was sort of casually reported in the news that, oh yeah, the Dallas shooter uh, was killed by a police robot. That is a, a first, I believe, in the sense that I don't think any civilian police force has utilized a robot to kill a, a suspect in active theater yet. Right. Now, it, it was casually reported, but it has been the subject of some discussion, right? Yeah, and some absolutely. hand-wringing. Yeah, since then, there's been some articles that came out. I'll link to one that was basically just saying, like, in an apparent first, this is, you know, this is now something that, that police are doing. And uh, there's been some hand-wringing particularly about, you know, what is the ethical standard here? Not that, uh, not necessarily saying that what the police did was wrong. Um, in fact, I think this is sort of the textbook case for a justified killing by police. This guy was actively shooting people at the time, uh, and they negotiated with him. For some time, it was pretty clear he was going to do his best to take uh, more people out uh, when they came to get him. But uh, they did do something lethal. I mean, it's pretty extreme. And I think the, the hand-wringing that I've seen has been basically all around, if they can do this, then what else can they do? What are the rules that they're operating under? Because we don't, there are no police robot rules at this point. Right. Well, and it, just to be clear, this is not an autonomous robot, right? It was basically Correct. just a remote-controlled robot? Correct. This is a remote-controlled vehicle. It's unmanned, but it's controlled by a human being, and the actual decision to detonate the bomb was 100% human-made uh, decisions. So right. This isn't... I think ethically, this is really not different, actually, than just um, rolling a grenade across the Absolutely. I don't parking think, garage. I don't think there's really any big issue because it's not... You know, you can imagine a sort of sliding scale of, you know, remoteness. The least remote killing would be, you know, a police officer, you know, bludgeons this guy to death with his baton. Right. right? And of course, that's brutal and horrible in its own way. And then you right. like step back. But in back. this case, it would have uh, opened the officer to great uh, potential harm because this guy was right. armed to the teeth. Right. So, you, But there's the baton level, right? Sure. And then so you, you slide over from that and maybe there's a police officer in an elevated window with a sniper rifle right. who pulls the trigger and then a bullet flies out of the gun and remotely kills the person who's standing on the ground. Right. Right. Or... You know, someone controls a robot with a remote control, which is like 
more remote, I suppose, than the sniper rifle. But again, none of these things seem actually ethically different to me. Well, so killing somebody with a bomb is pretty unusual in American police procedure. It seems a little messy, maybe, but it, it doesn't seem... It's messy. Ethically different. It's, in many cases, it would have a high potential for collateral damage, right? Well, sure. So, uh... I think in a lot of cases, it's just a poor tactical decision. and uh, But there was no collateral damage in this case, No, right? no, no. And I think in this case, again, this guy was holed up in a parking garage, so very hard to get a sniper to be able to shoot somebody who's got concrete floors right. above and below him. And uh, he was armed. So presumably there was damage to the parking garage. Maybe there were cars parked in it. Presumably the robot itself was expensive and now is no longer operational because well, it blew so up. I'm not sure that the robot was harmed, actually. Really? And this was something These I robots was, can withstand... I'm not sure what the answer to that is. So let me see. So, all right. After a quick Google here, I see that it was not destroyed in the blast. Only the machine's extension arm was damaged, they say, and only partially. It's still functional. They can still use it for other operations. They say some interesting things about this robot. So basically... They used its extension arm to deliver some C4, which is obviously just explosive. Mm -hmm. This was a $150,000 robot purchased for the purpose of defusing bombs. That's what this thing is actually for. What's interesting is that uh, these clever police repurposed this machine in the heat of the moment when they were feeling threatened and trying to figure out how to kill this guy. And they used it to, you know, deliver this C4 and kill him that way. I think, you know, I'm not as worried about the ethical concerns of that. It's no different from the type of ethical decisions that police face all the time. What I do think is interesting, though, is that this is not the first time a police robot was rigged to do something it wasn't originally designed to do. There have been some other reports that I saw to deliver a flash or a smoke grenade or do other non-lethal hacks, if you will, but that this was the first time a hacked military device that was given to a civilian police department was used to kill a suspect. And of course, again, this is like a textbook case of like clearly a justified killing of a suspect, but since we do have a ongoing problem with police violence in this country, the idea that there's now another uh, avenue by which police can kill suspects is not, you know, thrilling to me. Um, like we talked about in the previous Express episode, I'd really like to see weapons development be focused on non-lethal, you know, attempts to control. Right. It could, could you make a robot that rolls up to the guy and releases a, you know, knockout gas or something? Maybe it wasn't a confined enough area for something like that to work. Or, right. Or, or like, a tranquilizer dart, a tasing net. I feel like there's more than one way that you might have been able to actually bring this guy in alive. And while I appreciate that these guys were under a lot of stress, and I do think it would have potentially been good PR-wise and, uh, and such to have brought in a living suspect here. I think there's some incentive for the cops, if they can figure that out, to, to do it that way, because... Uh, well, there's also incentive not to because, you know, cops know how the legal system works and they know that, like, you know, it's going to be a long process. That's uh, true. Bringing yeah. justice to this guy that killed all of their friends. That's true. That's true. So they probably well, I, just want to see him get taken out. And, and not only that, but uh, but once they take him in with an unusual method, that automatically is going to open his case to some challenge, right? Because, you know, no lawyer who's not an idiot is going to let it 
just go by that he was apprehended by a technology that's never been used before, right? That's got to be part of the defense. Sure, it, maybe, yeah. Unless there's a law okay. in place that's allowed it already. Yeah, I could see from their perspective, they might think, don't open it up to, to that complexity. But I think that's too bad. I think uh, there are so many times uh, when law enforcers make mistakes. In this case, they seem to have gotten the right guy, but what if they hadn't? Or let's say, what if he had a hostage, an innocent hostage, who was back there with him? They couldn't just blow up the area with C4 or they'd kill both people. Mm-hmm. So in that case, having some kind of non-lethal way to subdue him which could also potentially be delivered by remote right. control vehicle because that part of it I don't I don't have a problem with it's just interesting. Well, no, no. I mean I mean uh, they're related because we've we've increased safety in one way by using a remote control vehicle which right. is removing danger to the officer. Right. We can increase safety a second way by removing danger to the suspect which guilty though they may be need not be like murdered in the street. We should have the legal system handle that. So, right, uh, right. So, we could so have yeah, orderly, re- we could have, yeah. I think, remote, non-lethal machines are, like, pretty much a, a huge advantage in a lot of ethical ways uh, mm-hmm. for law enforcement and safety ways. So, let's move on to the what's really important, uh, what everybody's been talking about for the last several days, and that, obviously, is Pokemon Go. Right. So, uh, this is getting called an augmented reality game. It has a small augmented reality component that fits our definition of augmented reality, which we gave in our augmented reality episode, which you can go back and check out. And that is the moment in the app where you can come across one of these Pokemon and you can see it composited into your camera's feed. So it looks like it's standing on a street corner or in your bedroom as you try to catch it. Um, right, the Pokemon exist in a sort of map of the world, and you have to sort of right. But that's the other thing that I was going to get to because I think right. they're calling it an augmented reality game. Right. But what's interesting about it is not that at all. That it ends up being kind of a gimmick and a way to share it effectively because you know you can take these snapshots of the real world with the Pokemon world and easily share them with your friends, and that's clearly helped drive adoption of this thing. Yeah. Um, Plus but, the novelty of walking around right. looking at your. But you can play that. Well, no, that you would be doing anyways. What I'm saying is you can play that game totally turning off anything that would be called augmented reality by our definition. Right. And what you're left with is a location-based game. Right. And that's not new either, but it is new on this level of adoption, right? So people have been working on like location-based games for a while now. There's been several attempts at this. Right. Um, Some have been just more like sort of advertising stunts for movies. And the history of this type of stuff goes back at least to like... 2005. Right, when uh, GPS circuits started to be widely available in phones. And or stuff. even just Wi-Fi. Or like there's lo- been location-based mm. games that were even before that that were based on upon calling from certain payphones. So this is even pre-cell phone <laughs> technology. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is, a, this is an interesting area for game design. Uh-huh. Um, in 2007, you had a game that was like based upon which Wi-Fi network you were on. So uh-huh. if you were on a certain Wi-Fi network, that was a certain island. Sure. There's a game called Plunder where you're a pirate. You had access to certain resources like at your home Wi-Fi, the local Starbucks Wi-Fi, and like your work Wi-Fi. Sure. You could try to take over the Starbucks. You could do arbitrage by like trading things you got from one island to another. Mm-hmm. Lots of cool stuff. Just no one played it, <laughs> right? right? Or like right. not in the scale that not we're seeing millions here. And millions of people who are um, playing Pokemon Go. And of course, like this game, as a lot of people probably know, is also based upon a prior game. It's based on big IP, Pokemon. Uh, well, no, it's based upon a prior location-based game oh. called Ingress. Right. It's right. basically a reskin of that. Right, because Niantic, the company uh, that made it, they, they made two previous 
games. One was Ingress and the previous one I'm blanking on the name of that were both along these lines, but not as advanced. Right. And so I've always been interested in this kind of game, uh, but it's it's both exciting and disheartening at the same time. I don't know. It's sort of like interesting seeing this one take off, right? I'm not, I, I, it's a little disappointing to me because, just because personally, and I no offense to anyone who plays the game, uh, I'm not a Pokemon fan and it has some of the sort of aspects of mobile free-to-play games that I don't like very much, like uh, the ability to say, like, pay for an advantage inside the game, for example. Right, right. Uh, versus, like, spending your time grinding for an advantage. Just, like, some of those dynamics I don't love in games. So it has, like, those qualities. I don't love the Pokemon theme, per se. Um, but more power to you if you like it. But I, I am interested into the idea of, like, a location-based game in general. Mm-hmm. So the fact that this is the one that took off, well, it's not necessarily the one that excites me, but maybe it will open the door for more of this type of stuff. Oh, I think it absolutely will. So I think the main thing that's interesting about it is that this is just the first major success of anything with a prominent AR feature set, right? I mean... It may not be the whole game, but it's what people are talking about. And it's what dri- it's driving people to. Right, but again, I don't think location based is AR. I mean, or like I, but I, it's both. It's not just location based. It shows you through the camera the Pokemon in the real world, right? And it is totally possible to play the game like that. And in fact, everyone I've personally seen playing the game has been doing it with their camera on. I think more because that's a compelling mode right. than because that's the best way to play the game. Or I something. also know people that turn that off though, because it's a battery drain and you don't need it. Right. It's right. like, well, so I, to me, that's not what's it, what's exciting. The reason the game is making headlines is because you're seeing people walking around the streets with their phones, right, playing doing a, a location. video game. Right. And they're loitering outside of stores and, you know, I mean like they're that's getting lured the, into yeah. uh, robberies and, like, it's, it's got a whole weird cultural right. effect uh, when everybody starts doing something that's both real and virtual. And um, I think that's cool. I think that the easy accessibility of the game is its strong point, and the downside of that is that it's maybe not actually a very well-designed game. But I feel like what I've seen people doing with it, and um, my friends are not maybe at the cutting edge of gamers, but they seem to be more experiencing it as a novelty experience than as a very serious game. My friend came over the other day, and when he discovered that I don't play the game, he was very excited to see if there were any Pokemon in our house. So he opened up the app and showed me a Pokemon on my desk and then proceeded to catch it. Right. And then uh, I went to a meeting the other day, and I'm sitting in an office of a uh, of a Hollywood producer, and people are sitting around doing their work. And the guy who sort of runs the place, the the boss, comes out of his office, pointing, right, right. pointing his phone at me and saying, "I'm gonna fucking catch you! I'm gonna fucking catch you!" And then I guess there was a Pokemon sitting next to me, and he proceeded to catch it and showed me, and then uh, went back in his office. Right. I mean, I mean, you know, I mean, it's it's to me, it seems like a very novelty driven activity from the. Well, what I take away from your stories is not that it's how universal the uh, the interest in the app is. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's it's really struck uh, like a chord. Like it's just like hit the zeitgeist perfectly, and yeah. like I don't. I mean, there's a lot of obvious reasons for that, like the IP being one of them. And, you know, the novelty is a part of it. Most people haven't really experienced anything like this before. I think um, right. what I'm curious about is, is this opening the door to more of these things or not? 
Because actually, we could say that it might not. I mean, on, on the one hand, this is so hugely successful. There's going to be a lot of pitches to a lot of people with money saying, I've got the next idea for the next Pokemon. Right. And a lot of people are going to bankroll those apps and sure, projects. Sure, So but That's going to be a lot like uh, Angry Birds clones or Flap. Flappy Bird clones or whatever. So we're starting to be clones, and I would like yeah. to see some things that aren't just clones that actually, like, you know, take the design I- in a different direction. It. Right, right. Um, but I don't... I, while I think we will see a lot of attempts, I don't know if that we'll actually see any make it. For one, I don't know how sustainable this is with the general population. I see that everybody is super into it now. Right. It'll be interesting to see how much of a fad it is. I think it may dwindle. Mm-hmm. I don't think obviously there will be the hardcore people that will not go away, right. but I don't know what percentage of the current fan base is those people and which percentage are just trying it out. Right. And that's the thing is like, you know, it's ability as a game to hold people's attention for time is going to be really tested here. Um, I mean, right now, everybody's gaga over this thing, but in a month from now, you know, if they're not revising and iterating this thing and keeping people engaged and making sure also that it's fair, right? Even though people can pay for items and so on, you know, the people can keep advancing and feeling like they have a real impact, you know? Right. Um, and getting continued value out of it. Like if they can pull that off, I don't know that I think that remains to be seen, but like what's. They have a shot at it, though, because they have a serious network. So if they keep making interesting improvements... They do. And I actually, I think that this game may be the game for location-based gaming. Mm-hmm. Here would be my prediction. My prediction is there will be several attempts to imitate this. 99% of them will fail. Mm-hmm. We'll maybe get one other competitor that people actually play. Right, that innovates in some cool way. Yeah, whereas this one will continue to be an institution that will be evolved and iterated upon and will have eventually possibly even like professional players. Here's what I think is the analogy for this game. It, it's, it's Magic the Gathering, right? It's like one of the most successful and valuable gaming properties today. Mm. Like one of the longest running games makes tons of money. Mm-hmm. The same thing happened when that game came out. There were tons of competitors. Everybody, every toy company, right. uh, comics company threw their hat in the ring, tried to imitate the success of Magic the Gathering and 90% of them failed. Actually, one of the things that did succeed, interestingly, was the Pokemon was card game. Pokemon, right? Which was right. Uh, an adaptation of their video, the original Game Boy game. Right. So, right. so they're, and Yu-Gi-Oh! does well. And that's about the list. Like, right. I, I might be forgetting one, but there's not been a lot of... That's the other thing, is there's, there's a native games market in Japan that... Like, that's one reason why Pokemon and Yu-Gi-Oh! do well, right? Right, but yeah, and actually, like, you know, if it was just America... Like, Magic might be the only one. Might be the only one. And the the reason is, it's a lifestyle game. It takes all your time. It takes all your money. (laughs) Um, Not only that, um, there's huge network effects, right? The game is... Right. Works better right. the more people that play it. Right. The bigger right. your scene is. Right. So, like, would people would make well-designed, interesting trading card games... Right. If you only have one other person in your city that plays it, there's nowhere to go. There's nowhere to trade with. Right. Uh, and if, same thing if you go to a pokey gym or whatever, and there's nobody there to fight with, that ruins the fun of, of the game. Right. So I think that Pokemon is that. I right. think that right. no one's going to be able to imitate this because they've got a huge head start. As long as they don't... Now, you know, they could mess it up. We'll see. They could mess it up. And now that people know this kind of thing is fun, you could probably get faster adoption than you would have before, especially if it's a free app that you download. Mm-hmm. But um, but yeah, I think the reason that this did so well in the first however many days 
is that it was already hugely world famous IP. Mm-hmm. Everybody knows about these Pokemons. For people who are just a little younger than us, Pokemon is every bit as well known as Mario or other big video game IP. So there's a lot of people who are sitting around already familiar with these characters, familiar with their characteristics, you know, familiar with the basic game. Right. Well, that's what got it started. But the the thing is now they have people in the system. Yeah. Lots of them. And that's adding value. And that to me is why it's going to be nearly impossible to unseat. Right. Yeah. It's got a a big network advantage. I mean, if you're playing this game, you're going, you know, out to the park at night. You're wandering your streets you know you're like you're investing time you, you just can't play can you play two of these games at once i don't really think that you can easily well especially not in the current version where like it has to be up on your screen at all yeah. times or it doesn't work right? i guess like with you know better phone technology where you could have two sort of passively operating at a time well, that's what i was thinking is what if this becomes less like a game and more like just the way all games are in the sense that, like, you know, we're just going to be looking at our screens more in the future. What if these games could run as, like, widgets, where they're always in the background? You are you could run any number of them. You could be opted into any number of them. And whenever you go, say, into a room that has any Pokemons or other collectible, you know, digital artifacts that you have signed up for, you get a notification and you pop into that program and you can well, I, interact I, with that. I think that the Facebook games and other persistent games kind of fall into that niche already. Like games like where you're always accumulating things in real time and you can check in now and then. Sure. And Facebook games are pervasive in the sense that they're always on when you're on Facebook. They have persistence. Yeah. Right. But, uh, but you could imagine that. But they're being... also on when you're not playing them. Like overnight, you know, some of these games like your city will grow, you'll accumulate money right. and resources. So it's just an iteration of that. Like yeah. Could also be on and aware of your, say, location or right. other, other things about you based on your cell phone or based on your yeah. you know, AR glasses or whatever you have in the future. But I'm imagining people walking around with AR glasses and just among the many things that they're doing, they're just always playing some of these games. Right. Um, and they kind of opt into them when they feel like it uh, to be more engaged, but they're always sort of passively building and grinding and growing their game stores mm-hmm. uh, to then use when they when they want a, a full immersion game experience. Because um, I feel like this is just like a further of this this casual gaming advance where... Uh, well, but what's interesting is, is, about is, this is it's not that casual. I mean, it's, it's no, got... No, you're right. It still takes a lot of your attention and there's like stories of people walking off cliffs or whatever right. when they were like looking at their phones instead of uh, looking around them. But I feel like that's going to get better. I feel like that part of it is a technology limitation because they're trying to do an AR game on today's cell phones, which aren't really made for AR. Right. Another thing that I saw that I thought was pretty interesting was somebody saying, oh, well, this is going to push the next generation of phones to be much more AR friendly, where I think the assumption, or at least the assumption that I had had, was that the next generation of phones is going to be very VR friendly. Mm. That, you know, with Project Daydream and with Gear VR and with, uh, you know, whatever mysterious stuff Apple's up to, there was going to be better VR built, baked in to the next generation or two of cell phones. Mm-hmm. Uh, but g- given that obviously executives at those companies have to be seeing this, they have to be seeing the success of this, and they're probably thinking better AR features are going to be a selling point in the next phone, you know, be, have faster, better, um, performance with your Pokemon. 
seems like a good yeah well i again i i had sort of a terrible experience trying to play this just because my phone didn't handle it well so like yeah i, I think there's gonna be get time for you to pressure. trade in that budget phone and and get yeah, yeah. samsung one million or I'm whatever sure that's gonna happen for a lot of people i'm sure yeah. like <laughs> i mean i didn't immediately order a phone because but i'm sure a lot of people did yeah, no, I mean, this isn't the exact thing that gets me excited, but it's getting a lot of people excited, and I bet it will um, drive some... Well, it's already driving uh, increased sales of, like, uh, battery packs and, like, battery extenders. <laughs> Th- that's a fact that I know. Yeah, well, so that's that's going to tell the manufacturers that the next generation better, you know, have better batteries, right. uh, bigger batteries, and um, and handle this kind of use case better. Anyth- anyways, I do think it's exciting... I like AR as a concept. I'm much more like excited about AR than VR. So I, I'm, I'm happy to see it get a big public mainstream win. If that yeah. drives more investment in it, then great. Yeah. Well, um, I feel like it could influence the outcome, which we discussed earlier of like sort of who wins. I think long-term, obviously AR wins, but I mean, who wins in the short term? Who gets here first? Maybe it'll be more of a simultaneous arrival than we had anticipated. Well, and I wanted to make one more point, which is that like what I was saying earlier about network effects, keeping competitors out of the space. Mm-hmm. One caveat is that only applies to multiplayer. Now, right, it's right, so right. tempting once you're out in the world and you're traveling to make it multiplayer. It seems like you're just leaving a lot on the table if you don't embrace that and make use of it. But I think for single player... Uh, location-based experiences, it's going to be a lot easier for a competitor to come in because they're, you're not going to be relying on that network being in place. Right. And I'm kind of interested in what could be done in that space. Like a, a adventure that's tailored for your neighborhood where you right. have a goal to achieve, somewhere to get, something to do, something to figure out. Maybe you encounter other people in your neighborhood that are doing it, but it's not relying upon that Right, right. Well, one thing that's interesting about this is uh, this Pokemon thing is apparently a lot of the in-game locations, I don't even know all the names of the different things, uh, are apparently clustered around uh, like churches and graveyards, I heard. Yes. Um, I was telling you that the other day. Okay, yeah. yeah. So that's interesting because those are things that you can scrape right off Google Maps. You know, that's a good way to randomly generate interesting game maps in any location because there's those things around. So you could expand that list maybe a little bit and have a game that, like you said, creates a personalized level where maybe it randomly hides all of the things you need Mm -hmm. in, um, you know, the local post office and the local graveyard and the local school and, you know, picks some other things. Yeah, I think that's kind of, I don't know exactly how, I mean, there are a lot of churches and graveyards and things like that. I don't know exactly how, obviously there's been some mistakes where they seem to be putting things in places that store owners and stuff don't want. I'm sure people have seen the stories about that, but like, I don't know exactly what they're scraping and how they're using it. I know that our local closest Pokestop is a trash can. (laughs) It's one of those like artsy trash cans that the city makes that oh, has yeah. like some decorations on the side. Uh-huh. Um, so yeah, I don't know how their algorithm is deciding what's what. I assume they just need to make sure that stuff is, you know, relatively evenly spaced, but I think actually it's harder to play the game in rural areas right now. So, right. Well, that makes sense, but there might be ways to fix that. It seems like yeah. come up with something. There's a lot of simple improvements that you could do by just collecting more data 
about locations and making those decisions smarter about where to hide things, right? Right. Um, and tailoring that to an individual individual person is particularly exciting to me. So, like, like if you could hide things within certain radius, like maybe when you start up a single player game, you specify the radius you're willing to go. Right. And then it, like, you know, it doesn't put things inside your neighbor's houses or anything, like, but it knows, like, sort of sensible places to put things to create, like, an appropriate challenge. Right. Well, another thing it can do is it can use uh, the sensors of the phone to map the space. And this is something where, again, new technology might uh, improve this. So one thing they might do in the next generation of phones is they might have 3D stereo cameras Mm-hmm. In the phone or or IR cameras that that can get 3D that way, mm-hmm. and uh, if they decide to do that, which something like this might spur some manufacturer to do, mm-hmm. uh, then you could use your phone to say map your house, and it would not just take pictures, but it would actually figure out how far away the walls are and stuff. Yeah, and then it can put everything in the game inside your house, and then you're you know now you have to go around the house and basically you could you know. Do endless iterations on the hide-and-seek model. And then once you can do that, you can use that as a level design tool for more complicated things, mm-hmm. I suppose. But um, yeah, I think that is an interesting way that AR might actually arrive around the same time as VR, which is different from what I was expecting given the, the demos we'd seen up to now. Well, and you know, I think people are... I think the crowd is going to tell us maybe that they like AR better. Well, this is a prediction we made before, right? Which is that it's a lower attention medium. The The immersive element of VR is its greatest strength and also its potential weakness when it comes to adoption. Because you to make the choice to be in VR, you're making the choice not to be in the real world. Uh, because you can only really be in one place at a time. But the whole idea of AR is that it overlays something on the real world, but you're still yeah. fully engaged in it. At the, time, at the point where this works really well, you're not going to walk off a cliff because you're going to see the cliff through the game at the same distance that you would if you were not looking at the game. And you're going to... Well, you can still see the cliff well, in Pokemon if you are If looking. you've got the camera on, right? But you can turn it off. Or I mean, well, I, I guess if you have the camera off. I'm assuming these people had the camera off and were staring at the phone. Staring and that's at the how map screen. Yeah, because if you look... Like, a lot of the game is just showing you a map screen of where you're walking. Right. So that's a level of abstraction that's dangerous. Yeah. I feel like if you get to this lower level uh, where you're seeing the world through the device at all times... And it's of the same focal distance so that it doesn't appear mm-hmm. distorted or anything, then you could have the situation where it's something you can choose to do at any moment, but it doesn't preclude you from doing the normal things of your life. Um, and it seems to me like that's the one the market is going to choose more often. Not that there won't be popular VR experiences in games, but that they'll be more niche, more like uh, big screen console gaming is now and less like mobile casual gaming. Right, right. You know? It seems to me like that, those are the two trajectories that sort of continue and Pokemon Go seems to be a, an early indication that that might be right. All right, well, we're out of stuff, right? Yeah, I think that covers what I want to talk about. Until next time, I'm John Perry. I'm Ted Cover, and you're listening to Review the Future. To subscribe or leave a comment on this episode, please visit reviewthefuture.com. 
You can also send emails to feedback at reviewthefuture.com. Thanks for listening.